Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I talked about days six and seven of his cross-examination of Robert Durst. On today's episode, we move on to days eight and nine of that cross. That's coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality often is not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. On today's episode, John Lewin discusses days eight and nine of his cross-examination of Robert Durst. And we begin by looking at the moment when Lewin confronted the defendant with a jailhouse call during which he suggests that he might falsely implicate his brother and his father in the murder of his wife. Here is that excerpt as it was presented in season two, episode 28 of Jury Duty followed immediately by John's comments on that exchange. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you have discussed that potentially at your trial that you might actually say that your brother or your father were involved in covering up Kathy's disappearance and death? I never said my brother or my father in covering up Kathy's disappearance. Didn't you say, Mr. Durst, that depending on how things went at trial, that you might actually get up there and say falsely that your brother or your father was involved in helping you get rid of your wife? Never said that. Can you play the uh, 102115 jail call at 1903? <laughs> Right. 
Mr. Durst, you were telling your wife that depending on how things go, you might confirm falsely what Janine Pirro allegedly thinks that Douglas helped you get rid of Kathy. That's what you said to your wife, correct, on October 21st, 2015. Correct. Well, Mr. Durst, can you explain that? It's not Andrew Durecki, correct? You're not talking to me to get a plea agreement. So please explain that clip. You're speechless, aren't you? I don't know how, how I try what, what trial we're talking about. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that that clip right there is basically a confession that you killed your wife and that depending on how things go, you might decide to take Douglas down with you? I think everything you just said is wrong. Explain how it's wrong. It's not a confession that I killed my wife. Explain, Mr. Durst, how you can say, right, 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 I might decide, depending on how things go, to confirm her thoughts that Douglas helped you get rid of Kathy's body. I still don't see how that could possibly help me at trial. No, Mr. Durst, the point is not that it will help you at trial. The point is, is you're saying that depending on how things go, if things are going really bad, you're going to take your hated brother down with you, even though he wasn't involved, just to spite him and put him in the same murderous position you're in. That's what that means, correct? What trial are we talking about? This trial, Mr. Durst. This trial. This was a call from October 21st, 2015. Why don't you just tell us right now, get it out and just tell us what you did. This is your shot. Everyone's watching, the world's watching you. Here's your chance. Tell them what you did. Argument. Rephrase. I thought this trial was about Susan Bowman. This trial, Mr. Durst, as you are aware, alleges a special circumstance of witness killing, that you killed Susan Berman because you killed your wife and she helped you cover it up. So my question to you again is, since you cannot explain what is, in essence, can be argued as a confession, Mr. Durst, why don't you just right now put the facade down and tell people what actually happened, why you did what you did? I have repeatedly told people what happened and why I did what I did. Yeah, that was a very interesting situation for this reason. So basically, almost every piece of evidence I put on earlier in the case, I deliberately saved this piece of evidence and did not put it on in advance. And the reason I didn't put it on in advance trial was, as I've said before, I always thought that there was a decent chance that at some point during the trial, maybe Bob would start there or maybe he would get there, that he would decide it's not going well, I'm going to get convicted, so I'm going to take everybody down with me. And so 
what I wanted to do was, by taking everybody down with me, I knew that he would be going after Douglas. And I had this great call where he is saying, not I'm going to tell the truth about what happened, but that depending on how things go, you know, maybe I will confirm what you mean Piro thinks. And the tone of that was not I'm going to confirm what actually happened, but that I'm going to make up a lie and try to take Douglas down with me. I thought that was very powerful, and it was especially powerful if Bob was going to go there, because as soon as he went there, I would be able to bring this up and show, yep, he was planning to do this all along. It's bullshit. Once he had already testified and we were deep into the cross-examination, which we were, I understood that that was not going to happen. He was not going to blame Douglas for this, and so there was no need to hold off on it anymore. I'm going to use it. I knew that it was going to be very powerful because if you listen to it, in addition to saying I'm going to confirm and I'm going to blame Douglas, it's also a confession. Because obviously, if he's going to say that I'm going to confirm what Janine Pirro thinks, that Douglas helped me and was involved, Douglas can't be involved unless Bob did it. So that was yet another confession that we had. And I could tell, I did look at the defense attorneys, Chesnoff and DeGarren, and they looked in genuine shock. I don't know if they'd ever heard that before. They certainly didn't know it was coming. I don't think they'd ever heard it before. Now, of course, they had it, but they were kind of spoiled because my approach had been that I laid everything out. I saved very few things for impact. That was one of them. The fun of this case was I knew what I had in advance. So we have all the clips ready to go. And then the question is, how can, in questioning, I make what I have even better by getting him to say even more outrageous and inconsistent things when he doesn't know that I've got the clip? I shouldn't have been paid for any of the days that I cross-examined Bob. I would have paid to get to do that. More fun than anything. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We move on to day nine of Lewin's Cross of Durst, and we begin this section with an excerpt from that cross. This clip comes from Season 2, Episode 29 of this Jury Duty podcast, as do all of the rest of the clips in the balance of this episode. In the clip, Lewin asks Durst about any concern he may have had that his friend Nick Chavin would tell authorities that Bob confessed to him during their December 2014 dinner that he killed Susan. But the key moment in this exchange is Lewin calling attention to Durst's use of words that suggest he's inventing his answers on the spot rather than simply telling the truth. Mr. Durst, you would agree that at this point in time, Nick Chavin has not testified yet, correct? Correct. And at this point in time, he is not returning the calls from your lawyers, correct? That's what you're being told. I told my lawyers to leave him alone. I'll make one with attention. So, Mr. Durst, 
you are sitting in this call with Susie Giordano and she is telling you, don't worry, Bob, Nick's 100% on your side. I'm positive, correct? That's what she's telling you. I think she was telling me that because Nick had told her that. Most of strike is non-responsive. Stricken. Every time I come up with an answer that you don't like, you get the charge to strike. It's interesting you use the term come up with an answer. Not answer, but come up with an answer. I'm just curious. Why do you use the term come up with an answer, which you would agree implies that it's not a true answer. It's something you're making up on the spot. What does it mean? Overall. It's my way I talk. Me meaning lying? To think of what I want to say to you. And then when I come up with my answer, you ask the judge to tell the jury to ignore it. You sneeze on the words come up with. Do you remember that? So again, this is why you have to listen very carefully to what people say. Because in the midst of a lot of questions, the truth has a way of sneaking out. And Bob is giving a very honest answer. But what I come up with is clearly not truthful. So in other words, Bob, in explaining his frustration, is honestly saying, hey, every time I come up with some bullshit, you end up not letting me say it. So basically, Bob is saying that this confession with Nick never happened, and that in essence, this dinner never happened. Nick spent a bunch of time cross-examining Nick, again, foolishly, making the point that the dinner never happened. If you recall, during the cross, trying to argue that the restaurant doesn't have a, you said it had X, Y, Z, and it doesn't have a patio, and you couldn't have been there. In other words, Dick made the argument, which the jury has already heard, that this dinner never occurred. Now, for Dick to make that argument, it's very clear that Dick doesn't know the evidence in the case because Bob is calling Nick and telling Nick well before Nick ever testified at conditional examination, Bob calls up Nick on April, I think, 7th or 8th of 2016. This is before Bob knows what Nick has told me. Nick does not end up testifying until February of 2017. Nick ends up having a conversation with Bob. They haven't talked in years. Bob calls Nick from New Orleans jail in April of 2016. And within a few seconds of the call, Bob is bringing up that dinner, all right? And so obviously, if the Garen's defense is going to be that dinner never took place, that won't work. Your defense is going to have to be, well, we had a dinner, but I never said that. But of course, they don't know the evidence. So I knew that the jury has already heard the conditional examination testimony of Nick Chavin, where Dick is pushing really hard on the fact that this didn't ever happen. So basically, what is happening, and the argument that I'm making when I play that call is, is basically, you haven't talked to Nick for 20 years, approximately, and immediately after the call, you're bringing up this dinner, which your attorney is basically saying didn't happen, and where you're saying nothing significant occurred, you never confessed. So I thought that was extremely damaging evidence. And if you look a little further, if you remember, we had gotten in evidence that Bob's lawyers, the Garen literally showed up at Nick's office trying to interview him. They used Susie Giordano, Kiki Friedman, everything they could do to get a hold of Nick Chavin. Bob is talking about his concern about Nick Chavin. So obviously, if you never told Nick Chavin you confessed, 
why are you guys treating Nick Chabin as if he's the most important witness in the world? Why are you bringing up this dinner, which either didn't happen according to your attorney, or if it did happen according to you, you never said anything? Well, the answer is because you know that at that dinner you confessed, and you know that Nick Chabin is holding the keys to your jail cell. Next, I asked John about his questioning of Durst about a cruel joke Bob made at the expense of his brother Thomas and Thomas's family. Here is an abbreviated excerpt of that questioning, again taken from Season 2, Episode 29 of this Jury Duty podcast, followed by my discussion with Lewin about it. Remember the Durst Obesity Clinic, Mr. Durst? I think you titled the Durst Obesity Center. Do you remember it? No. So it's going to be, this is, uh, I think it's People's at 280. I'm going to read it in the interest of time. Top left, there is, you would agree, that appears to be an image of a of an obese person, is that correct? I think so, Cal, and put that together. At your direction, correct, Mr. Durst? I don't know about it, my direction. Well, it says the Durst Obesity Center, and then it has an address. And that address at the time was the address of your brother Tom, is that correct? I did not think that Tom Everywhere in Morris, California. The item says as follows. We are excited to announce the opening of the Durst Obesity Center, and we intend to serve the needs of the obese Marin community. We are Tommy and Diane Durst, the founders of the Durst Obesity Center, DOC, along with our fat children, Emily and Daniel. Mr. Durst, Tommy and Diane Durst, that's your brother and sister-in-law, correct? Correct. So... I'm going to read, how often have you been stared at? How many lectures have you been forced to listen to? We will reform your thinking process and encourage you to see the positive aspects of obesity and to accept your, quote, right to food enjoyment. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that, in fact, Sarah Kaufman's part of it was you gave him the handwritten part of this while you were in custody in Galveston, and you had him computerize what you had already written, correct? Totally incorrect. So it's your position that Sarah Kaufman had all the information about your brother-in-law, your sister-in-law, your niece and nephew, and that he is the one who is behind this uh, mocking, I don't know what to call it. He's the one behind it all? Yes, he was trying to get on my good side and get money out of me. Why he was very successful. Why would making something so cruel like this get on your good side? Because he thinks I'm estranged from my family. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you have constantly mocked your brother Tom since he was very young for his weight? No. My brother Tom was seven years younger than me. I hardly saw him until the two of us adults. He tried to say that Sarah was behind the whole Durst Obesity Clinic doodle. So the Durst Obesity Center, what happened is, is Bob doodled in jail. He doodled this in, like, pencil. He gave it to Sarah to digitize, and Sarah digitized it. So Bob is now trying to say, well, actually, this is from Sarah. Well, no, it's not from Sarah. You gave it to him to digitize. So when Bob gets up there and tries to say, oh, yeah, Sarah created this whole thing, it's absurd because, one, 
Sarah doesn't know any of these people. He doesn't have the information about these people. He's got no reason to end up having done it. And why does Bob have it? So, again, it's a lie that doesn't work. And the more Bob tells it, it just makes things worse for him. In this next section, I discuss with Lewin yet another perjury trap that he set for Durst. We begin with a clip from Lewin's cross of Durst. Have you ever faked or discussed faking an illness or medical condition in either of your homicide cases? No. In fact, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that your playbook of kind of faking medical conditions goes all the way back to your arrest in Pennsylvania and your trial in Galveston? I have no playbook of faking medical conditions. Please put up LADA 130635, please. That's your handwriting, correct, Mr. Durst? Correct. And I'm going to read it. It says, correct, if I am wrongfully convicted, I will be an inmate in Texas where all inmates, except those with medical reasons, work. I would like to know if there is an eye disease or impairment that I could fake. I was once diagnosed as having glaucoma because I did not pay attention to the flashing lights and seemingly missed most of them. Is there a condition or disease that is hard to diagnose except by the symptoms that the patient describes? Please assume that the doctors, many quite elderly who work in the Texas prison, would take other jobs if they were available. Also assume that the equipment is 10 to 15 years old. Obviously, I would not attempt to fake blindness. All that is necessary is that I have some problems. And then you signed the letter and wrote the words color blindness on the side of the letter. Is that correct? Correct. Well, Mr. Durst, that would appear to be you faking a condition you don't have, correct? Correct. So when you said a moment ago, under oath, in this courtroom, that I've never done that, was that more perjury? That was a mistake. This was a letter I wrote a long time ago when I got there. Let me ask something else. Are there other instances, Mr. Durst, where you have attempted to fake medical conditions or other conditions? To the best of my knowledge. The only time I ever thought of faking a medical condition was when I wrote this letter. Are you sure? Yes. Uh, J.O. called a Susan Giordano, page 14, line 18, to page 5, line 17. Put it in your own words. Is there a somebody has dementia, like a blood yeah. test or something? In our test, a lot of them are people in college concerned. Physical test, and it doesn't make any difference. I'm thinking it's going to be to my advantage to say I'm something from dementia that sounds like something or other. Does that refresh your memory, Mr. Durst? I still don't remember the conversation. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that you were having a conversation with Susie Giordano discussing 
A, whether you could fake dementia and how you might get caught, whether there were tests or not, correct? Correct. And Mr. Dirt, at the time that you were having this conversation, you weren't suffering from dementia, correct? Correct. And you're not suffering from dementia now, correct? Correct. Bob is going back to Texas. He's literally sending out a letter going, I don't want to have to work. And so I need to come up with some bullshit, some lie that I have some disease. You know, if I, the doctors here are not very good, is what he's saying. The, the best doctors don't do this work. So he suggests that he'll basically fake colorblindness and that that'll get him out of work. It's not well-crafted, but he doesn't remember what he's done. So the first thing you do is you get him, you lead him in a question where he thinks answering it the way you're pushing him to answer is going to help him. So I'm going to basically get him to say, no, I've never faked anything. I've never done that. That's not true. Once he's stuck with that, then I hit him with what happened in Texas, and I hit him with, he's on the phone with Susie Giordano talking about faking dementia. It's disturbing. It's almost laughable in how he's doing it, but it again conveys the overall theme, which is, I'm rich. I'm not like the rest of you people. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, even though I'm in jail and I'm supposed to work, I'm not going to work. I'm Bob Gers. I need to find a way to get out of things that I'm saying and not have to account for myself. I'll fake dementia. One of the issues that I was very concerned about in this case from very early on was that Bob would end up faking dementia, and all he has to do is basically say that he doesn't understand the questions that I'm saying. In the mob, the chin who was a notorious New York mobster. They called him the Chin. Vincent the Chin Gigante. That's who it is. Yep. So he would point to his chin, and that meant to shut up, not say anything. You never got any good audio stuff because he never said anything. The other thing that he would do is he would go around in his bathrobe walking around the neighborhood. And for years and years and years, all fake. He stayed out of prison. And my concern was that Bob would fake that he did not know what was going on. And the problem for me is, once Bob fakes that, how do I disprove it? In other words, it becomes very difficult, and he could have been in a situation where he is found incompetent. What that means is that the case is just delayed, and eventually you have to wait until his competency returns. So I was very worried about that. We wrote a bunch of motions. I did a bunch of work. This comes under the heading of we thought of 25 things that the defense could have done in this case that they never did. We were prepared for each and every one of them because that's the only thing that you could do. But, you know, 90% of the time, they never thought of it. So he never ended up pretending to be incompetent. And, again, it takes a lot of commitment. You know, knowing Bob, he would have screwed it up. Not only did he not try to prove it, but he actually accused his lawyers of suffering from dementia. Yes, temporary insanity or collective dementia. That was in response to the stipulation. Can't say that Bob didn't have the point. Lewin and I then move on to discuss Robert Durst's stunning acknowledgement, not only that he had committed perjury during his Galveston trial for the murder of Morris Black, but that he had also committed perjury in the very trial in which he was at that moment testifying. Here's one last excerpt from Season 2, Episode 29 of Jury Duty, in which we have combined testimony from both the morning and afternoon sessions of Day 9 of Lewin's Cross of Robert Durst. Mr. Durst. 
you have stated previously that for the most part, you tell the truth. And I think you said that as an example, you have only lied about a couple of things. Is that correct? Well, we were talking about the gallows and trial. No, now I'm talking about your trial here. I lied about several things. And when you say several things, Mr. Durst, uh, would you agree that several is more likely many? I would say five. Your best estimate is five. Correct. What are the five? Oh, I don't know. Two of them I've repeated repeatedly at the Galveston trial. I said I was in Northern California when I was in Southern California. The second one was when I said I had not written the cadaver note. I imagine I could come up with three more if I tried. Five. So I'm asking, so what are the five? You named two. What are the other three? Let's see what else. What else was I under oath? The question originally was how many lies under oath, how many instances of perjury do you believe you committed during this trial? And I believe you said five. So I'm asking, what are those five? I would have to think about it. Go ahead. I can't think who. Yeah, so this is an example of where you don't know where you're going and Bob opens a door that you don't expect him to open. Behind it is all kinds of good stuff. And, you know, now I just want to go in that room. Let's see what happens. So basically, now Bob is admitting that he's perjured himself in this trial. I mean, great. I know he's perjured himself a ton of times. There's nothing he can say there that's going to help him. Any discussion is just a negative. That was a shock. I mean, Bob admitted to things on the stand. Some things he admitted to unintentionally. Some things he admitted to intentionally that were really damaging for him. But I couldn't believe the stuff that he was admitting to, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And this is at the top of the list. How can you already having to say that you perjured yourself previously? You don't have a choice. But why would you tell the jury that you've actually perjured yourself during this current trial, during your testimony? I mean, it's crazy. And, of course, if you think about it, the two things that he said, he said he's perjured himself five times in this case. But the first two examples are perjury from Galveston. So, in other words, he's now admitted in this trial that I was in Los Angeles. He's admitted in this trial that he wrote the note. So actually, those wouldn't even be two of the five. But there's no reason to point that out. Bob's the gift that keeps on giving, and you just need to keep him talking because everything that comes out of his mouth, it just kills him. So I don't know specifically what it's going to be, but I know it's not going to be true. I know it's likely going to be outrageous, and I know it's likely going to open two more doors. So that's what we did. It was incredible because it was like a great ride where I don't know where the next turn is going to be, but I know it's going to be good for me. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I conclude our deep dive into his cross-examination of Robert Durst, and we also discuss the redirect of the defendant. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>